A brief update. It's May the 12th, 2024. I've released just two episodes of this year. My father-in-law passed away in January. He bravely fought a multitude of health issues for well over 15 years. Rest in peace, John. My wife of more than 20 years, Lisa, is remarkably strong, much more so than I. Her outlook on life is always positive and has motivated me to resume my passion project. Research for new episodes is now well underway. Stay tuned and sincere thanks for subscribing to my podcast. There was no doubt there was a reverence held for Drazen. Obviously in death, there's a reverence held for Drazen, but it was held for him when he was alive as well, and I think that's pretty special. Then you are in Australia right now. You're talking NBA basketball. You're talking great teams. You're talking great individual players. Takes it off and there's number 23. And of course, Johnny goes nuts. So I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it now. I just tried to go out there and play my game. I have no idea what you're talking about, Adam. I don't like anybody. I'm not a people person. Strand, you made the pass. Yes. Christian, can you catch the ball? Yes. All the stars were aligned and all the muscles fired at the right time. And I was able to get off the ground and throw one down. I was saving that as a surprise for you. And now... Introducing your host for In All Airness, Adam Ryan. Welcome to episode 24. Thanks for joining me. My website, inallairness.com. Just add a forward slash and the episode number to view show notes. I encourage you to interact with the show. Please visit facebook.com forward slash in all airness. You can add your like to the page, suggest topics for future episodes or guests that you'd like to hear from. You can leave voicemail comments on either of those two sites. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, or you can simply add my RSS feed. Just check out the right-hand sidebar of my website. You can hear the show on Stitcher, Player FM, and other podcatchers. Follow me on Twitter at InAllAirness. I'd like to thank Howzito, a.k.a. Adam, and also SixRings23, which is a fantastic username, a.k.a. Dean, for their written iTunes reviews. The show currently has 12 five-star ratings on the Australian iTunes store, which is just great, so thank you very much for that. If you add a review, I'd love to mention your name on future episodes. By choosing to rate and review my show, it's the ultimate assist to me because it helps me to reach a wider audience, so thanks again for those that do that. On this episode, I'm joined by a good friend of mine, Todd Spear. We talk about the amazing life of Drazen Petrovic, tragically cut short 20 years ago, this June 7th, 2013. Todd has written a soon-to-be-released book all about Drazen's life. Please keep a close eye on his Twitter timeline, at ToddSpear35, and he can spell Spear, S-P-E-H-R. He's tweeting facts and anecdotes about Drazen, plus he'll announce specifics about the release of his book. If you enjoy this special episode of my show, I'd love for you to share it with your basketball-loving friends. Now, on to the show. I'd like to welcome back to the show today a good mate of mine, Todd Spear. How are you, mate? I'm good, Adam. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thanks for joining me today. We've got a, a really good episode ahead, I'm sure. This is going to be a great conversation. We're going to be talking exclusively about Drazen Petrovic, and depending on when people are listening to this recording, it's almost 20 years to the day since Drazen sadly passed away. Uh, he died in a car accident on June the 7th, 1993. So we're going to be focusing on the life of Drazen Petrovic, and I thought there's no better person to speak to than yourself in relation to this because of your involvement in having written a book that will be soon hopefully out published in the world. Can you perhaps just even talk a little bit about researching Drazen and how the idea for the book even first came about? 
it's funny. I've thought about it often, and I, I don't actually know the answer myself, Adam. You know, Drazen was a guy that was a star player when I was young, when I was first learning the game, first appreciating the game. Obviously, I remembered when he passed away. It was, as I'm sure you do as well, the summer of 93. It was a very, very big deal. As time's gone on, I, I think I've come to realize that the thing that attracted me to Drazen or, or Drazen's story was mythology that comes with these guys. Like, I consider he and Sabonis to be these guys we don't know enough about. You know, these stories that you hear, these guys coming from Europe, we know the basics about them. You hear stories, they get exaggerated. Well, that, that's how I saw Drazen. Obviously, the Nets, when he played there, they were not a team that was on television a great deal, so... Even the American fans wouldn't have seen Drazen a great deal. So I think part of the attraction was unearthing something about Drazen that firstly I didn't know and then sort of broadcasting it to other people. But obviously the ESPN documentary came out in, I think, 2010. That wasn't exactly a catalyst for me to write the book, but it certainly um, was a great promotional tool for people to learn more about Drazen. But people were able to see highlights of when he was younger, and there was certainly um, a lot to learn from in, in regards to that documentary. But for myself, it was always about learning more things. And, and quickly, I realized that it was a, a fascinating life that Drazen had, and it really snowballed from there. Yep. Now, we'll likely talk about that documentary you're referring to. It's Once Brothers. That was produced by ASPN as part of the 30 for 30 series. And it focuses on the friendship that fractured between Vladi Divac and Drazen Petrovic after the civil war outbreak back in uh, the former Yugoslavia. So we'll, we'll certainly touch on that a bit later on. Going back a little bit, let's just quickly talk about a few basic facts and figures. Drazen was born in October 1964 in Croatia and he died on June the 7th, 1993, just two days before the 1993 NBA Finals was to get underway as well. And it was a, a huge story. Yes, yeah, sadly, he died in a car accident in Germany. As you were saying, a lot of people would probably be familiar with his NBA exploits, but not a lot of people, unless they're obviously in, in Europe and have followed his career back in that time. Not really many people know a whole lot about him. I am consider myself a pretty knowledgeable fan of the NBA for sure, and I can talk about Drazen quite comfortably in his NBA days, but I've got next to no idea about all the things that happened back in his European days, aside from what I've, I've seen myself on the Once Brothers doco and a few articles I've read here and there. So we're going to try and touch on a few things to do with that as well. But he's referred to in numerous articles that I've read as either Baby Star or Basketball Mozart in another area as well. I saw him referred to as Brazen Drazen. Yeah, the one that I have the most affection for, without doubt, is Mozart, you know, the Mozart of basketball. and was actually a nickname that was given to him by an Italian journalist named Enrico Campagna. And I was very fortunate that I had the opportunity to speak to Enrico, and, and he was very excited that his role in Drazen's um, aura. Enrico was a very prominent journalist in Europe, uh, a basketball journalist, and and he, he told me this interesting story that he was very fascinated by the Yugoslavian players. He'd always, there was something about them that, that he was he gravitated towards. And at one point, he was fortunate enough to, to go to Croatia, you know, on journalism work. He convinced his editor to take him to allow him to go to Croatia and, um, and sort of observe these young players, this, this academy of sorts. And it was at that point that he first discovered Drazen, you know, and, and he spoke to, to Biz Erka, who was Drazen's mother, and, and she sort of told him, you know, this boy, he had a hip condition that he, that he was born with. 
it was a, a subluxation of the hips. So Dryzen's hips at birth were not aligned properly. And, you know, doctors all the way up to the age of 12 thought that he was going to have difficulty if he sort of maintained these athletic pursuits. But Bizerka Petrovich, who, by the way, was a, a driving force behind Drazen, you know, pushing him to, to push himself, she sort of told Enrico Campagna, this boy is special. Even this hip condition couldn't stop him. Enrico followed Drazen. He watched him grow in, in the European game. And, and Drazen, I, I'll use the term professional very loosely because they were not paid, the Yugoslavian players. But Drazen, Drazen joined the professional league at the age of 15 in Šibenik, his town of birth. And he played for a team called Šibenka. So Drazen made his way up. And it was in 1985, uh, you know, around Christmas time, when Drazen was playing for Sabona, that Enrico saw Dryzen play up close again, you know, and this is sort of at the height of his rise to fame in Europe. Mm-hmm. And uh, Enrico saw Dryzen's flash. It was like this blend of flash and fundamentals, and Dryzen sort of had this famous work ethic, not unlike, say, uh, in our terms, I guess it would be like Don Bradman practicing his batting with a, a stump and a golf ball, these creative ways to sort of find greatness as, as he, you practice and get better. Well, Drazen sort of had that story attached to him, and Enrico Campagna was watching Drazen play and just fascinated by how unusual and how special he was. And yeah, the Mozart nickname came from that, the prodigy turning into something extraordinary. The Mozart nickname was born, and that story I expand on in the book. I actually opened the book with that particular anecdote, but a nickname like Mozart adds to the mythology that I was speaking about earlier. You know, you hear it and you think you don't need to see Drazen to sort of know that he was special. For good measure, Drazen loved the nickname. He had a cafe in Zagreb that he called Amadeus, which was Mozart's <laughs> middle name. And so he, he totally bought into it. He loved it. A nickname like that is shot him to fame in Europe. I love that already. I've already learned more in about five minutes about Dryzen than I knew previously. So you're dropping knowledge straight off the bat, mate, which is great. Another thing that I've read in researching for our conversation today was the comparisons that were made between Dryzen and Pistol Pete Maravich. Yeah, that was something that I think the American writers used to sort of articulate Dryzen back to the American readers. I sort of get back to that point of being able to see Dryzen play. Um the Yugoslavian national team would come out every November to the United States and they'd play exhibition games against some of the big-name division schools. This was actually a um, – the idea behind it was from Digger Phelps, the Notre Dame coach who would spend many summers in Yugoslavia in the 70s and 80s, and, and he encouraged the Yugoslavian national team to come over to the U.S. and play. They were the only times that people outside of Europe would see Dries and play, you know, mm-hmm. Obviously, the Olympics and, and the World Championships would be other opportunities, but, you know, those games sort of weren't on television. So when describing Drazen to the, say, the American reader, Maravich's name was brought up, there are some similarities. There's absolutely no doubt, all the way down to the, the child prodigy, you know, the obsession, narrow focus of just devotion to the game. Absolutely, there is a very solid comparison there. Even the flash. Drazen was different to Maravich in that he sort of outgrew that flash. As I'm sure you remember, Adam, Portland and New Jersey, there was not as much of that showtime approach to the game. But when he played in Europe, Drazen never hesitated to take up the opportunity of jumping in the air, throwing the ball between his legs. What's interesting is in the uh, 88 McDonald's Open, Drazen had two passes where he jumped again when they were playing Scavellini in the, the first game. Drazen jumped in the air, you know, put it between his legs, 
and then through the past. What was interesting was Maravich's career essentially ended on the same play. January 31st, 1978, Pistol had a, a pass against Buffalo, jumped in the air, put it between his legs, tore up his knee. Two years later, he was finished. So the irony was that Drazen loved to do a pass that Maravich's career ended on. I think the comparison only sort of extends itself to Drazen in Europe. When he left Yugoslavia and went to Madrid, his game toned down. When he got to the NBA, that flash was almost completely gone. Yeah, I agree, because in the NBA, he was obviously in his first few years, and we'll touch on those shortly, he was mainly relegated to a role of bench player, and then he started to really find his footing in the league when his trade to New Jersey went ahead in the early 1990s, so we'll definitely touch on that. Now, talking about your research for the book and access to people that you interviewed and whatnot, how did you go in terms of accessing the footage? I'm sure that YouTube would have been pretty much a godsend, I suppose, but where else were you accessing footage from in terms of researching for the book, mate? Drazen has this following, this extremely devoted following, and obviously the internet is a beautiful place that you can access absolutely anything. So there were a lot of European games that I was able to access the earliest game that I, I found was a, a 1982 game in the Kordach Cup, uh, which featured Drazen. And he was, uh, this was at the end of the 1982 season, so he was only 17 years old. And, you know, he had this mop of hair and it was black and white footage. But it was, I'm the type of person that if I want to be a good writer, I need to see a lot of footage. I, I find that it's just absolutely essential. So I was lucky enough people were taping games in, in Yugoslavia and Croatia and and that they were sort of sharing these broadcasts online. There was another instance where I contacted the University of Notre Dame, and, and Drazen has sort of an interesting history with that university. He, he heavily considered going there in the, um, the fall of 1984, and they recruited him hard for two years, and, and there's obviously a deeper story there, which I elaborate on in the book, but the university itself had a recording of a of an exhibition game from 1983, and uh, Drazen had 24 points and seven assists, and I was absolutely thoroughly impressed with how controlled he played that game. You know, Notre Dame was played with a lot of pressure, and the Yugoslavian, not all the Yugoslavian players were handling that pressure very well, but you look at Drazen and he'd just turned 19 and he was handling their pressure. He was really controlling the game. So I was fortunate enough that I was able to see that that broadcast. But plenty of people in Spain were taping his Madrid games. So, you know, I was very lucky that for the period of the 80s where Drazen sort of came of age, um, there was a lot of footage available. And I'd hate to think how many films I watched, but I, I couldn't have written the book without him. It's, it's pretty simple to say. A good little insight there into the backstory. I like to know that sort of stuff as well. Now, you do mention that Digger Phelps had many links to Yugoslavia, having had visits there and, and whatnot. And Petrovic actually, from what I've read, he actually did commit to going to Notre Dame to play for the Fighting Irish in 1984, but he never left Yugoslavia. You know, as I mentioned, Phelps was pretty active in Yugoslavia during the, the, the off-season, the college off-season. He would go and do clinics and I was fortunate enough to speak to a gentleman named Farouk Kulenovic, who was Drazen's coach at Shibenka in the 81-82 uh, season. And the gentleman's memory was absolutely immaculate. was able to break it down in detail how Phelps came to, to first see Drazen. Uh, he was doing a clinic, you know, in Drazen's hometown. It, I mean, this is a small town on the Adriatic Sea. It's, you know, a, not a huge place. So for Digger Phelps to sort of stumble onto this gem that, that Drazen was, was pretty unique. And I spoke with Digger and, and he was 
insistent that from the first moment he saw Drazen, he felt that he could be a very good college player. Drazen signed a letter of intent just minutes after an exhibition game at Notre Dame. He pretty much went from the floor down to the coach's office and um, signed a letter of intent for the 84-85 season. So the plan was that if he was going to attend college, it was going to be after the LA Olympics in 84. There was something interesting of note, and, and one of the things in Yugoslavia that was really fascinating to me when I was putting the book together was there was a rule, an age rule, that you couldn't leave Yugoslavia. Not just basketball players, but athletes in general couldn't leave until the age of 28. They couldn't leave to sort of pursue you know, their careers outside of Yugoslavia until they turned 28. And Drazen, he was able to get that rule changed. His stardom obviously going to be someone that was going to go somewhere and do something special. And he sort of, in a polite way, said to the, the Yugoslav Basketball Federation that if you don't let me leave before the age of 28, then I won't be available for the national team. Well, Drazen was the national team, so yeah. they changed the rule for him. That wasn't until the middle part of the 80s, but he actually um, decided not to go to Notre Dame for the 84-85 season. He actually spent the prior year completing a year in the military, but decided to instead sign with Sibona, which was in Zagreb, the one of the major teams in Croatia, to play with his brother, Alexander. And, and they were one of the top teams, if not the top team in Yugoslavia at the time. So certainly do wonder what would have happened had he gone to Notre Dame. Perhaps he would have been like Detlef Schrempf, who, who did a year of high school and then four years of college, and he was drafted in 85. I sometimes wonder if Drazen's career would have turned out somewhat differently had he gone to college and, and Phelps said to me you know that he would have made Drazen understand the American game he would have given him time to understand the game and, and turned him into a professional. At the time that we're talking about in the mid 80s the foreign players were eligible to be drafted to the NBA only in the calendar year that they turned 22. Now for Drazen Petrovic that was 1986 and therefore he was selected by the Portland Trailblazers in the 86 NBA draft. He was the 60th pick overall, so he was a third-round selection. In the lead-up to the 1986 draft, what can you tell us about Drazen and, and how he was in terms of thinking where he may be drafted and what opportunities he may have had once the NBA came calling? You know, the NBA was this far away destination, this unrealistic in some ways for the European players, mm -hmm. because at the time, being a professional meant that you couldn't play on the national team and not playing Olympic. Th those things were, I guess, in some ways more important in those days. So Drazen or Sabonis or for one of those guys to try to come to the NBA at the time they were drafted would mean that they wouldn't be playing for their national team. And that was a debate that a lot of guys had. They would lose their amateur status, and mm -hmm. that was a big consideration. But there were three key men in getting Drazen to Portland, or the idea of Drazen even being drafted by Portland. I was fortunate enough that all three were available to speak to me. The first is a gentleman named George Fisher, who was an American coaching in France. He was friends with Bucky Buckwalter, he wore a lot of hats in Portland. Buck Walter, he was player personnel, basketball operations, scout. He was everything. So George Fisher and, and Bucky Buck Walter would talk about the, the top European players. And, of course, the fascination was always with Sabonis because he was big, obviously knew how to play. He was just so unique uh, when he was younger and more athletic. But whenever the conversations would change, they would move to Drazen, and Drazen was the best offensive player in Europe. He was unparalleled as far as creating his own shot. He was a lot different to the European players. So 
you know, George Fisher would, would tell Bucky Buckwalter about Drazen. Fisher had coached against Drazen. You know, he knew his game reasonably well. So Bucky Buckwalter started traveling to Europe and he would see Sabonis and he would see Petrovic and he would make notes. And they even played against each other in the European Cup final in 1986. And one of the fascinating things that came out in this book was this rivalry between the two. There was reports that they didn't like each other and all sorts of strange stories, in-game incidents, you know, talking through the media at each other. I even was told a story that Drazen got kicked out of practice the day before a game against Sabonis because Drazen was clearly sidetracked. He wasn't focused. And his coach at the time, Zelko Pavlicevic, said Drazen played two games when Sabonis. Drazen played the team against the team, and it was him versus Sabonis. He really got keyed up to play Sabonis. You know, those, those two were winning all the awards in Europe. So those two were the main focus by the NBA people. As you mentioned, 86 comes around, Drazen gets drafted. I think he was the 60th pick, perhaps in the third round. Portland drafted him, and it was sort of a situation where they didn't know what to do next. How do we go about getting this guy? So Bucky Buckwalter asked another friend of his, another American who was coaching in Europe and working in Europe in basketball circles, a gentleman named Kenny Grant. And for two or three years, Kenny Grant would meet with Drazen, and, and they would talk about the NBA, and they'd talk about Portland. And they would talk about the game over there, the players, and he would sort of gauge Drazen's interest. And, and it sort of wasn't until Drazen turned 25 that he sort of started saying, okay, or, or, you know, 24, 25, that he started feeling comfortable with the idea, you know. There was a lot of unknown at that point. The Americans didn't know how good the Europeans were when, when measuring them against the NBA people. And in many ways, the European players didn't know truly how good they were because they'd never been tested against the NBA talent. So it was sort of this dichotomy where they knew these guys were good players, but they didn't know how good. So Drazen was sort of the forefront of that sort of thinking. It was three years before he even tried the NBA. So it was a four or five year process just getting him to the league and pretty fascinating one as well. Yeah, for sure. And it's good to hear about those mind games that he was also playing or or battles he was having against Arvidas Sabonis because he was the main man in terms of the awareness of people who were outside of Europe. It was always this towering seven foot three Arvidas Sabonis was sort of the measuring stick as far as who was the greatest player in Europe. I guess at that time you could probably say quite comfortably. So interesting that he was having a good battle with him as far as games that they go up and play against each other as well. Yeah, well, just an, a, you know, a fantastic story that I was told by Bucky Buckwalter was um, obviously he drafted Sabonis in 86 mm-hmm. as well as, as Drazen. And I think there was one Sports Illustrated writer that called it the joke of the continent that those two were drafted to the same team because of this, this dislike for each other. But Bucky Buckwalter went to the 88 Olympics in Seoul and the gold medal game was the Soviets versus the Yugoslavs and Sabonis versus Petrovic. And after the game, players were getting drug tested randomly. Well, as it turned out, Sabonis and Drazen were being drug tested in the same room. So they were both providing samples. Well, anyway, Drazen was having a difficult time providing a sample and it was just he and Sabonis in the room there with the tester and So Sabonis told one of the officials, you know, go get us a six-pack of beer. And anyway, two hours later, they they came out of the room, arms over each other, best of friends. So Buckwalter was scared that, you know, there was going to be a fight between the two, you know. But they came out and they were all smiles. And yeah, so as far as I know, they were maybe it was blown up. But that was a a nice little sidebar to their rivalry. It's a good story to hear that one. I like that one. Now, you were speaking about how many years it may have taken for Petrovic to actually end up playing for the Trailblazers. And his first season with them was the 89-90 season. So he was a rookie 
in the year that the Blazers made it to the NBA Finals against the Pistons in 1990. He played 77 games in that first season, but he didn't start any, of course. Came off the bench in all those games, and the Blazers made it all the way to the NBA Finals, losing out to the Detroit Pistons. But what sort of background do you have about his first season in the NBA, mate? From what I understand, Adam, it was the most difficult period of Jarzen's life. You know, he was fulfilling a dream by playing in the NBA. They were able to pick up broadcasts of NBA games from the Italian television networks that they were able to get in Croatia, and he dreamed of the NBA. He'd made it his goal to sort of reach the top level. Jarzen sort of had this belief that if you put the hard work in, a certain order of events will follow afterwards. He'd put the hard work in to get to Portland, but when it those next few things didn't happen for him, it was a difficult period of time for him. I was fortunate that I was able to speak to to teammates and friends and sort of people that were around him during that period of his life. And, you know, he would call people. I know Divat spoke about it in the documentary, how often they would talk, but it wasn't just Divat that Drazen would sort of rely on. He, he called Stojko Vrankovic, he called Dino Raja, he would talk obviously to his family. He never lost that belief. It was more a disappointment that he wasn't playing and yet his confidence was able to stand up and he never lost that faith. I think it's always amusing that Drazen believed he should have been playing more on a team that had two all-stars. I think that tells you a lot about Drazen's confidence. Obviously at that point in, in time, though no one knew it yet, including Drazen, his body and his game needed to change for him to be successful. He wasn't going to be the player in the NBA that he was in Europe. A lot less dribbling, a lot more stand-up, spot-up shooting was how he was going to survive, and, and that's what he did in New Jersey. But we'll talk about it a little bit later. But his body completely changed. If you look at him in Portland and then look at him in New Jersey, he had a completely different body. So I think Drazen, you know, I think it was a necessary step for him i think it was a necessary not failure but it was a necessary difficult period because it showed him what he needed to do to to sort of be successful but by and large it was a very difficult time for him yeah very true and in the 89-90 season his high score for the season was 24 points and he ended up averaging 7.6 points a game along with one and a half assists per contest in those 77 games played for the regular season so just a bit of blatant self-promotion here for a moment. I did speak with Cliff Robinson, who was obviously on the Portland Trailblazers. That was his rookie season as well, 1990. Yep, yep. So people want to just check out an interview I had with Uncle Cliffy. Check out inorlandis.com forward slash six, the number six. You'll be able to hear me chat with Cliff Robinson. And we talk about that rookie season, which was 1990. So that could be an interesting contrast to at least have a, a listen to how he found his rookie season compared to what we're talking about now with Drazen. Moving on, mate, he had another full season with the Blazers. He played with them throughout 1991. He played 61 games. He raised his average to about 10 points a game, almost two boards a game as well, and one and a half assists too. So he started to get his comfort level more in the NBA system. He went up to about 17 minutes a game from around 13 minutes a game. So he was starting to show some improvement there. But it was in the midst of the 1991 season, as far as I'm aware, he actually asked for the trade, or I'm not sure if he demanded it or just asked to be traded. How did that sort of unfold, mate? Can you, what can you sort of tell me about that? Yeah, absolutely. While it's true that Drazen's numbers improved and his opportunity to play, that it wasn't until he got to New Jersey. It, the situation in Portland actually got worse before it got better. They got Danny Ainge. From what I've read and what I've spoke to people, the 1990 finals was like this. It was great that Portland was excited that they'd made the finals, but Detroit's bench had just been pivotal, and I think it was like 
two of the four wins, they were the difference. Obviously, Vinnie Johnson hit the game winner in game five, and he was a bench player, a reserve. So Portland sort of looked at their roster and, you know, they looked at ways to get better. They were able to work out a trade to get Danny Ainge from Sacramento, and they only gave up a player in Byron Irvin that didn't play very much at all, and they gave up, I think, a second-round pick. So they got Danny Ainge, who was a terrific player and a winning player, and that effectively ended Drazen's role in the rotation. You know, I scrambled around to try to work out a statistic from that half season in Portland in 91. And I think he played in one game that was decided by less than 10 points. So he wasn't playing meaningful minutes when he was yeah. playing at all. And that just tore him apart. Drazen was a competitive guy, a guy that was devoted to getting better every day. And I mean, it just cut him up that he wasn't playing. I spoke with a guy that was pivotal in Drazen's NBA career was his agent, a gentleman named Warren Lagari, and he was confided to me that he might have hurt some relationships with people in the Portland organization in the process of trying to fight for Drazen. You know, he was fighting for Drazen to get him an opportunity to play. And, you know, it is true, like you said, Drazen asked to be traded, but not so much. He, he was asking for an opportunity. So, you know, that came in New Jersey. But you mentioned before his statistics from his rookie year, he was able to average, you know, seven points in limited amount of minutes. Mm. One of the things that attracted New Jersey was that Drazen's shooting percentage in such a small amount of playing time was still really good. You know, it's hard to come into a game when you're cold, maintain a good shooting percentage without sort of being in the rhythm of the, the flow of the game. So it was obvious that, you know, Drazen was, was a good player, but he just wasn't getting the opportunity. By January 91, he got traded and it was just the best thing that he could have asked for. But I think, you know, some people were a little disappointed in him that he was asking to be traded. Portland insisted that they were in the long haul and they worked unbelievably hard to get Drazen out of his Real Madrid contract. They employed lawyers, legal bills. They really worked hard. They really wanted Drazen and wanted to see him succeed in Portland. But it was a timing issue. There was just too much talent there, too much established talent. And Drazen was never, you know, not in, in the immediate future was going to get an opportunity there. So New Jersey was really, you know, a blessing for him. Yeah, definitely, mate. Correct about his field goal percentage. I've had a quick look now on Basketball Reference, and he averaged about 49% from the field in those first two seasons with Portland. So even in limited minutes, he could obviously spot up and hit. His pull-up jumper was pretty much one of the great things about his game he was almost unstoppable and it was just a fantastic move that even though you could tell it was coming he was a marksman from you know 15 20 feet range yeah and that that was the constant if you look at say european draws and, and nba draws and was the jump shot you want him to be among the great shooters of all time there's not enough sample there justify putting him in there but i mean i've Watched a lot of film on Drazen, and he's truly one of the greatest shooters I've ever seen. He could shoot off the dribble, but he could, you know, like you said, that the put up, the the spot up jump shot. It wasn't natural for him to be a catch and shoot shooter. He'd always created for himself in Europe, but when he got to the NBA, he sort of just forget who told me now, but I think Terry Porter helped him a little bit learning to use screens, and that was sort of a pivotal thing for Drazen. And he became a great spot up shooter. And he became the best spot-up shooter in the league for sure. So he went from being a, a dribble, creating his own shot, mm -hmm. to a, to a spot-up shooter. So he could do it any way that you could shoot it, he could do it. Yep. What other players or personnel did you speak with from his time on the Portland roster? You said Terry Porter a moment ago. Who else did you have a chance to chat with about his development at that particular time? 
I actually didn't speak to Porter. I was tried very, very hard to, to get access to as many people as I could. And it was being in Australia, it, it's, you know, a timing issue, you, you know, getting people on the phone. So you don't always have a lot of luck. The one that does stand out to me was actually Rick Adelman's lead assistant coach. And that was a gentleman by the name of John Wetzel. He was sort of able to talk about Drazen's development. He told me a story of the first time they met Drazen, which was he came to training camp. They took him to the locker room and they sort of drew up some plays. Adelman drew up some plays on the board and they were just shocked at how much Drazen knew about the team already. He knew the, the roster. He knew how each player played and they were really, really impressed by his ability. And that sort of goes back to the unknown of the European players. You know, they were surprised that Drazen knew certain things about the team. Well, that wouldn't be the case now, but Drazen worked really hard the year and a half that he was in Portland. So obviously, um, as I mentioned before, it was a difficult time, but also a time of learning. There's uh, no doubt about that. Yeah, this is legitimately pre-internet we're talking about here. So yeah. to be able to have some understanding of what the team roster was made up of and, and who did what and how they functioned, that obviously shows how keen of a, a student of the game he was and just trying to get his opportunity to play at the highest level. Yeah, no doubt. Just before we move into the next phase of his career when Drazen was traded to New Jersey, how about the 1992 Olympic Games? Obviously the Dream Team versus Croatia, that was a gold medal matchup. But do you have any anecdotes or things that you'd like to share about Drazen in the lead up to those or even from those Olympic Games? To sort of predate that, you know, the Yugoslavian team that broke apart in 91, that was a team that was really beautiful to watch. There was Drazen and Divac. Kukoc obviously was coming up. Raja, another player named Zarko Baspali, who played for San Antonio briefly in, in the 89-90 season. That Yugoslavian team was it was a generation, obviously, of talent, but there was chemistry there. And, and some of the players that I spoke to that played on that team, you know, they didn't realize it at the time. It's only in looking back that they realized sort of how special that team was. So I understand that there was the issue of war and there was the issue of people losing their lives, but basketball lost, you know, on a lesser level. Basketball lost out by the Yugoslavian team breaking up. But, mm -hmm. you know, watching Drazen play for the Croatian national team, especially in 1992, he did play briefly in, in 93 before he was killed. But in 92, it's my favorite period of time watching Drazen play because his body had changed by then. He had his NBA body by then. But he was also handling the ball more. So it was sort of like this cross-contamination of European Drazen and NBA Drazen and refer to those two as if they're two personalities or two characters because that's sort of how Drazen's career played out. But he was an absolute driving force behind Croatia, arguably the most patriotic of players. I spoke with a friend of Drazen's who told me that, you know, he went down to the United Nations at one point during um, Croatia going through their difficult period, you know, when they were um, being attacked by Serbia. And Drazen went down to the United Nations and sort of took part in this protest. And, you know, he wanted to bring awareness to Croatia and what was going on there. And he would go into the stands after games at, at Barcelona and grab the flag. And, you know, when they won the, the semi-final game against the Commonwealth of Independent States, you know, Drazen just, he had tears running down his face and it meant they were going to the gold medal game. It meant they were going to win the silver, that he was able to sort of bring that to his country when it was going through a low point was very gratifying for him. But to see him play at Barcelona, it was really, he was one of the top players at that tournament. I thought, I sort of look back on it as another step for Drazen 
uh, in his career. And, and that's what he was all about, taking steps and getting to this next level. But when he represented Croatia, he was really, really good. And I think, as I mentioned, it was it was my favorite period of time watching him play because it was just a combination of, of all the elements, the best of Drazen. So he certainly wore that Croatian jersey with a lot of pride. Yeah, definitely, mate. Just quickly, how about the relationship with Tony Kukoc and having since watched Once Brothers, we've got a fairly good understanding of the Vladi Divac Drazen relationship. But how about the Dino Rajas and Tony Kukoc? I believe he did try and reach out to Tony Kukoc throughout the writing of the book but couldn't get in touch with him. But what can you maybe just tell me briefly about those guys? You know, the first thing that comes to mind, very close-knit, especially for Drazen. In Drazen's case, he was very close with Stojko Vrankovic, who was um, played briefly for Boston. He also played later in the NBA after Drazen had passed away. But And Raja, the, those three were very close. The friendship was there. Drazen was friendly with Kukoc as well. Perhaps not as much. I, you know, I can't confirm that, but... There was certainly a respect level that was reserved for Drazen that guys like Raja and Kukoc, they were they were coming behind Drazen. They were three and four years younger than him. And I relayed a story to you off recording before we recorded that Sports Illustrated's uh, one of their writers, Alexander Wolf, interviewed Kukoc around the time that he'd been drafted by Chicago and when Drazen was at Portland. And Kukoc was just shocked that Drazen was not doing well in Portland. And I believe the phrase that Alexander used to me was that it went against the order of the universe in Kukoc's mind that if Drazen can't succeed in the NBA, then then Kukoc felt, you know, what hope do I have or anyone else? That's how they looked at Drazen. He was always a step or two ahead of them. He had achieved, because of his age, things that they were trying to achieve. By breaking the 28-year rule that Yugoslavia had, Drazen allowed guys like Kukoc and Raja to leave Yugoslavia and so he was a, a pivotal guy but there was no doubt there was a reverence held for Drazen obviously in death there's a reverence held for Drazen but it was held for him when he was alive as well and I think that's pretty special yeah that sure is we talked about how in January of 91 the Blazers traded Drazen away to New Jersey so he played the final 43 games of the season with the Nets and he averaged close to 13 points and two rebounds a game in that time while shooting 50% from the field and then he had two full seasons with the Nets it was the 91-92 and 92-93 seasons and he did average above 50% from the field throughout that time whilst averaging almost 21 points a game in that first season with the Nets and then over 22 points a game in the 93 season. So he's very unlucky not really to make an all-star team too. That's very true, especially in 1993. But, you know, what was the pivotal turning point for Drazen was the summer of 1991. For various reasons, he decided not to play for Yugoslavia at the 1991 European Championships that decision wasn't based solely on basketball. It was about bigger issues, obviously. But he used that summer to, to stay in the United States. And the strength and conditioning coach, Rich Delatry, Ian Drazen became inseparable that summer. And, and every day, you know, upwards of six hours, Drazen just remade his body. You can probably see it on the film. If you look at Portland and then New Jersey, Drazen's legs just his legs took on a new shape, a new definition. He gained so much strength in his lower body. His upper body changed some as well, not drastically, but, mm. but some. He remade his body. The 91-92 season, he became a starter. You know, Bill Fitch told me about this fascination that they had with Drazen when he first came. Well, it was sort of like he was a project for them, for, for, for a guy like Bill Fitch and Drazen really came of age for the 91-92 season. He became a 20-point scorer, which the first European to do that. 
it was really a breakout season and to sort of do it in a place like New Jersey that had forever been, you know, maligned. People talk about Drazen in New Jersey as if he's the most popular player that the franchise has ever had. He sort of changed the culture in a way, even though there was players there that had bad reputations. Um, Drazen was sort of like this shining light. Um, and it was really just like Portland was bad timing. The timing in New Jersey was perfect for Drazen to break out. And he did just that. Yeah, 20 points a game in 92 and upped it to 23 in, in the 93 season or 22 and a half thereabouts. And in 1992, he played all 82 games in the regular season as well. So obviously a very durable player, which certainly makes sense given that he did build up. He put on about 20 pounds, I think, is what I read as well. So you can definitely tell in the pictures or even the footage when he was with the Blazers or as a European player. And then his latter stages of the NBA career, he was certainly a different guy altogether in terms of build. Yeah, and it was necessary. I mean, he wasn't going to survive in the NBA with the body that he came with from Europe. Yeah, it was a great transformation, and I think he was second in most improved voting that year behind um, Never Nervous Purvis Ellison. Never Nervous Purvis. Now, he was given the Player of the Week award as well once in the 1993 season. Early on, he got Player of the Week honors once, and he was third-team All-NBA in 1993. So he certainly came along in the 92 and 93 seasons, and tragically, his career was and life was cut short, and we'll get to that shortly. But in the 92 and 1993 playoffs, the New Jersey Nets were bounced by the Cleveland Cavaliers each time in the first round. It was a 3-1 loss in 1992 under Bill Fitch. And then the following season, Chuck Daly took over as head coach of the Nets and the Cavaliers defeated New Jersey in five games, but not before the New Jersey fans and basketball fans in general were treated to some great showings by Drazen, particularly come playoff time. The moment that is you know most often played with Drazen is is from Game Three, um, in the '92 playoffs. Played at home, they were down 2-0, and Drazen hit two threes in the final four minutes, and the celebration. That's what Drazen's all about, really. Mm. You know, the the three point shot and then the celebration, and and it's not sort of an off putting celebration, or you know, you, it's not showboating as much as it's just jubilation, but. Drazen was able to bring life to that franchise, and there's a lot of people that he was able to befriend in that franchise, people who still think about him today. And, you know, that was an amazing transformation that he experienced. But I think New Jersey, all he wanted was an opportunity, and he'd finally gotten that opportunity. But the 92 playoffs was really a shock that the Nets had made it. The 93 edition of the Nets, there were some expectations there. Chuck Daly had obviously began coaching there and obviously had Coleman and, and Kenny Anderson, but that season sort of fell apart due to bad luck and, and injuries, and, and Drazen was playing the best ball of his career in March of that year, and he tore a ligament in his knee, and they told him initially that he'd be out six weeks. He came back in three, and uh, you'll probably notice his playoff numbers were not up to standard. He was really playing in a deteriorated condition. with a, His knee was really bad, and I think that, um, that was one of the reasons why I think he was considering leaving to go back to Europe because he had come back early even though he was in a contract year and you know he wasn't playing at 100 percent and I think there was part of him that felt that that wasn't appreciated but you know that's obviously another story but he was able to help take them to the playoffs two times and that's what people remember most about him I think was that celebration in, in 92. He made the team relevant again because the Nets were a bit of a laughing stock with respect to them in general, but he definitely made them become relevant again. And his on-court 
exuberation was yeah just a release of emotion more than actually showboating as such so you're spot on in relation to that just having a quick look at the 93 nets roster <laughs> it's an incredible collection of uh of guys oh, yeah. we've got like yeah just said kenny anderson um you've got mo cheeks Derek coleman uh chris dudley bernard king rick mahorn yeah jason williams dwayne shinchus <laughs> like it's just what an eclectic bunch of guys so to yeah. be able to yeah get their way into the first round of the playoffs that's that's no mean feat it probably speaks to the greatness of chuck daly i think that they were able to achieve they're actually fourth in the east when uh Drazen got hurt it was about the second last week of march they were fourth in the eastern conference behind chicago new york cleveland so Drazen Drazen to be the leading scorer on the you know the fourth best team in the east i think that sort of spoke about where he was as a player but yeah like i said the knee injury slowed him down but just an incredible incredibly unusual you know even by new jersey standards unusual you know group of players very true mate very true just before we touch on the tragic accident that led to his death in june of 93 following the elimination from the playoffs to the Cleveland Cavaliers, just that time in between. Can you just talk a little bit about his whereabouts at that time? You did touch on it briefly a moment ago, but what transpired in the lead-up to that fateful day in June? You know, this gets lost because of what happened, because of the accident. But when Drazen played his last NBA game, it was elimination game in Cleveland, game five of the opening round. Obviously, New Jersey lost. You know, within minutes, the reporters were in the locker room and Drazen you know, vented his his frustration, and it, and it stemmed from you know a couple of things. Obviously, the contract situation. Drazen was asking for good money, but you know it was a a salary that I believe he earned. He wanted to be the second best paid shooting guard in the league, and statistically he was right there. You know, so obviously Jordan was making the most money. Drazen was asking for in the range of four million a year. New Jersey had been very slow in sort of responding to that contract. He was a free agent. To cut a long story short, he was a free agent and they hadn't moved quickly enough. Drazen was all about respect. Like I said to you earlier, you know, Drazen believed in this certain order, you know, success, hard work, respect, you know, those things sort of fall into place, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think Drazen felt a little bit disrespected. Obviously, there were these offers coming in from Europe, most notably Greek team Panathinaikos, who were coached by a former coach, of Drazen's and Stojko Vrankovic was playing there. And so there was a little bit of talk that he was contemplating uh, that particular offer. Another thing that, that hurt him, Adam, was the fact that he had played hurt and there'd been a couple of incidents, which I detail in the book, towards the end of the season, an incident with Chuck Daly, an incident with Derek Coleman, that, that he felt that these things were reported in the newspapers at the time. And he mentioned this in his last interview, just days before he was killed, that, that he'd been left a little bit hurt by those aforementioned incidents but I think it was a combination of things you know I spoke to Stojko Vrankovic about this he was extremely close to Drazen you know as close as anyone could be and Drazen was undecided people like to say that Drazen was going to do this he was going to do that but from the information that I've received he was undecided as to what he was going to do absolutely Europe was a valid destination Knowing Drazen, if Drazen was the competitor that everyone says he was, then I, I find it hard to believe that he would go to Europe. But it's the eternal question that obviously only one man can answer, and mm. and he's not here to answer it. But it's one of the fascinating things about Drazen's life was that, yeah, he was undecided. The talk was that he wasn't going back to New Jersey, but that obviously remained to be seen. Willis Reed, I know for a fact, had planned to, to go to the European Championships, which were to be at the end of June. 
and he was going to sit down with Dries and they were going to try to figure something out. So, yeah, anything could have happened. But, yeah, to, to say that he was upset when he left the NBA you know, and went back to Europe at the end of the 93 season would be a fact. He was upset. But whether that meant he was not going back, I can't say for certain. Mm. Without giving away too much, because obviously we want to look forward to reading what's in the book and all the things that you've uncovered about this, but what can you perhaps just tell us in relation to those final days and, and hours leading up to his tragic death? Well, what's interesting, Adam, is that Drazen left the United States two days after the elimination game in Cleveland. And, you know, like we spoke about earlier, you know, he left pretty disappointed with how his season ended, especially considering how well he played. But he was injured. His knee was still giving him problems, but he was still committed to the national team. So he spent parts of May, near the end of May, and then into early June playing in, in exhibitions and, and a qualifying tournament for Croatia. As I mentioned, he was hurt and he was uh, out of contract, so he was more than entitled to be uh, sitting out. And Croatia was a very strong team. They obviously had Rajar and Kukoc and Brankovic. They didn't need Drazen to, to qualify for the European Championships, so he insisted on playing. I think that says a lot about him, but the Croatian team actually played a, a qualifying tournament in Poland in the first week of June 1993. And Drazen had some big games. I think he had 48 points against Estonia in one of the games, you know, even though he wasn't at full strength. They played a game on Sunday, June 6th. They'd already qualified for the tournament. Their opponent was Slovenia. They had already qualified for the tournament. So the game was essentially meaningless, but I've seen footage of the game. I have a copy of it. Drazen was sort of dragging his knee up and down the floor. He didn't need to be playing, but but he did. You know, it turned out to be his final game. Uh, he scored 30 points. He didn't shoot the ball very well, and he, you could tell he wasn't exerting a great deal of energy because of his injury, and they actually lost that game, and I've been told Dryzen was very disappointed. Even though the game was meaningless, he was very disappointed with how the, the outcome had gone for Croatia, but the next day the team was to fly out. They were going to fly first to Frankfurt, Germany, and then on to Zagreb, and, and it was at Frankfurt that Dryzen decided... You know, he'd made tentative arrangements to meet a friend of his. Her name was Clara. He made tentative arrangements to meet with her. It turned out that she was at the, the Frankfurt airport waiting for him. And, you know, I think the thing about Dryzen's death that, that is so stunning, I guess, is that it could have easily been avoided. You know, I've spoken, obviously, to a lot of people that were close to him, and I think accepting that fact has been the most difficult thing that could have easily been avoided. There was sort of a late storm that hit Germany, hit hit sort of the Frankfurt area in the late afternoon. It was a 26-degree day from memory, and there was a, a thunderstorm in the late afternoon. Dreisen said goodbye to his teammates at the airport, and, you know, he was going to be in Zagreb in a couple of days to meet up with them. I think they had two days off before another practice was to start, so... Dryzen was so determined and so focused on his basketball career to give himself some time for his social life and time outside of basketball was he'd more than deserved it. So he, Clara, and, and another friend of, of Clara's, her name was Hilal Edebal, the three of them drove were driving towards Munich and a downpour of rain. Obviously their their car hit a truck which had been driving north and it had sort of moved into the southbound lane and they were going at a high rate of speed. Clara was driving. From the reports that I've read, Dryzen was asleep at the time of the impact and, and he didn't see it coming, but he died instantly. And there was sort of a, a little footnote to that. He was wearing a gold watch on his wrist that stopped at the point of impact. And as I mentioned, he was killed instantly. But, you know, one of the things I've pieced together for the book, Adam, was that everybody remembers where they were when they found out. It was sort of like this, you know, people talk about JFK or, or these 
9-11 moments. And for the people that were close to Drazen, they all remember where he was when he was killed. So obviously, considering where he was at his point in life, you know, all his dreams were coming true. He was on the up. For him to be killed at that point, it's especially tragic. You hear about Len Bias. He sort of died before his career was getting ready to start. You know, you hear about Maravich. His career had already ended, you know, different. Drazen was at his peak. Like, mm. it's just, yeah, very, very, very hard to deal with. It was very difficult to write about. But thankfully, I was fortunate enough to speak to Hilal. She was sitting in the back seat. She was an incredible woman, able to offer her memories to me. been fortunate that I've accessed some newspapers, some local coverage that, that gives us new details about the accident, but that didn't make it any easier to write about, that's for sure. Yeah, it just sounds like an incredibly tragic time, of course, and yeah, I just I really look forward to being able to read and absorb all this sort of information and just take it all in and yeah, just think about the life that he had and how it was tragically brought to an abrupt end. Yeah, and I think it's especially relevant, being the anniversary of his death, to look not only at what Dryzen did, but also the impact that he had. Obviously, the game, as we all know, has, has become globalised, but I think equally as important, the respect for European players has increased incredibly in the years since Dryzen passed away. So he obviously contributed to that, and I think that's one of the things, very difficult to pinpoint one thing about his legacy that's sort of everlasting because there's so many things. So I think that's a tribute to him. Yeah, unfortunately, we're just left with a what-if question. Obviously, personal tragedy and family issues aside, the fact that he was almost at the apex of his career and what could have been in those following four or five seasons in the NBA, he was just starting to reach that upper echelon. We'll just be always wondering what could have been in terms of uh, Drazen in the NBA. Yeah, absolutely. And like I mentioned, that's one of the cruel things about the, the accident itself and the timing. But just while we're talking about it, very important to note that the Petrovic family have been incredible as far as pushing Drazen's legacy and making sure that his contribution to the sport has not been forgotten. His mother especially has been at the forefront. You know, there's a museum in Zagreb and there's two statues in Croatia that immortalize him. He's one of three athletes who have a memorial or statue at the Olympic headquarters in Switzerland, which is incredible. So Drazen's legacy is, is very safe. And as you mentioned, the, the what-if game, we can only speculate as to where his career was going. But based on what we know, it was continuing upwards. So, yeah, very difficult. Yep, he was on the up and up for sure. Well, thanks very much, mate, for chatting. I know friendship aside, I've, I've really enjoyed hearing this story and, and what you've learned in your research about doing the book and I am very excited to read it when it does come out. So congratulations on all that you've achieved in, in relation to that and thanks for joining me on the show today. Thanks for having me, Adam, and thanks for your support. Obviously, you've known about the project for quite a while and publishing details will be coming soon. So you guys can keep track of that on, on uh, Twitter, Todd Spear 35 There'll also be a webpage released soon, especially on the 7th. I'll be tweeting about Drazen and obviously a great legacy that he has and a great story. And yeah, I'm honored to be able to tell it. So I appreciate you giving me the opportunity. You're welcome, mate. Most welcome. Definitely keep in touch with Todd's Twitter handle. There'll be some interesting bits and pieces that will be uploaded right around that anniversary date. So that's all we can sort of say at this stage. So thanks again, Todd, and we'll be speaking again in terms of some future episodes of the show in the near future, no doubt. Sounds good, Adam. Thanks for having me again, mate. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show and share my web address with your friends and colleagues, inallairness.com. Check out the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with high-profile guests. Follow me on Twitter at InAllAirness. 
please visit the show's social hub, facebook.com slash inorlandis. Join me next time for another edition of the show.